can overcome the sin and the, and the trouble and the mess that we at times make in our own lives. Lord, we thank you that as we look at the broken world around us, we know that that is not the end of the story. But that because you've overcome the grave, because you are sovereign, we have hope and we have confidence that one day you will bring back to wholeness what is now broken. And I pray now as we open your word that you will give us clarity of thought, um, that you will give us a conviction from your Holy Spirit, give us a clear understanding of your word, Lord, that we may not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, and really take it to heart so that we can see how you want to work through us as individuals and as a community to reach out with the gospel and to rebuild this broken world. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but for me, when I look at what I am doing with my life, I really want to invest my life in something that really matters, something of lasting and significant purpose. And when I look at the world around us, there are a lot of different causes that we could invest our lives in, many worthy causes, needs that need to be met by someone, people who need to be served in various ways. There are a lot of great causes out there that we could or maybe even should invest our lives in. But we also have to recognize that in the midst of all kinds of good causes that we could invest in, we oftentimes have barriers that hold us back. Some of the barriers include complacency, distractions, maybe fear if we look at this, this tremendous need out in front of us or maybe on the other side of the world and we just wonder, what difference could I make? What if I step out and what if it doesn't go the way I want it to? And so we have all kinds of things that can hold us back from applying ourselves to great causes. Now when I look down through world history and I look at great causes that have been met uh, by a great commitment by a great number of people, it can oftentimes be traced, at least humanly speaking, to someone who serves as a catalyst, either an individual or a group of people who issued a rally cry to people to step out of their complacency and fear and step into love and commitment and actually action to make things happen. I think, for instance, back in World War II, I think of Winston Churchill, the great statesman from Britain, who was instrumental throughout the war in helping shape Britain's commitment to overcoming the Nazi regime that was taking over Europe and beyond. He, he was famous for giving great speeches. I want to read to you a portion of one of his speeches that he delivered to fellow government officials just very days before Britain entered the war because they saw that the Nazis are overtaking Europe. They saw we're going to have to do something here. So listen to the speech that he gave to his fellow government officials. Winston Churchill said, I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against this monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long or hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. 
So Winston Churchill issued this rallying cry. The nation of Britain rose up and they began to take on the Nazis. And them, along with the other allied forces, including America, eventually, after many years, overcame the Nazis and established peace in Europe once again. But much of it can be traced back, at least in England, to the influence of Winston Churchill. Now today we're going to be backing up further in history, backing up about 2,500 years ago to something that took place in Jerusalem through a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah also issued a rally cry to a group of people to rise up to the occasion and to address a very significant need. And then we're not going to just stay back there in the in 2,500 years ago. We're also going to make applications to our lives today here in the 21st century. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah 2. We're in our fourth week of the series through the book of Nehemiah. And I want to take a moment now just to kind of set up where we are and where we've been. Because if you don't understand where we have been, what's been going on, it's really difficult to understand what's really taking place here today. So you have Nehemiah. He's living and, and, and working right now in the year 445 B.C. And he originally lived in the Persian Empire. And he served as a cupbearer for the king of the Persian Empire named King Artaxerxes. Uh, Cupbearer is a very important role in that era. And he also had a Jewish background. He got word from men who had been visiting Jerusalem that the walls of Jerusalem and the city were still broken and in disarray. And this broke his heart. And God, he sensed, was calling him to leave the luxury of this king's castle and to go to Jerusalem to play a part in rebuilding that city. And it was very evident very quickly that God was at work in the situation. And God even worked in the heart of this king of the entire Persian Empire in order to have the king support this building project. And so last week we looked at how Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem. And one of the first things he did once he got there was to go out on a reconnaissance tour, really assessing the walls, assessing the damage in order to go into that project with eyes wide open. Because he wanted to go into it with a plan. He wanted to assess reality so that he would not be caught off guard by the scope of the work that needed to be done. And we read the last verse we looked at last week, uh, Nehemiah 2, verse 16. He said, The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or anyone else who would be doing the work. So up to that point, Nehemiah was doing all this, this background work in secret. He hadn't yet told anyone what he was going to be leading there. But today we're going to pick up in verses 17 and 18 and see when Nehemiah begins to rally others to this cause of rebuilding the city. So I'm going to read Nehemiah beginning in verse 17 of chapter 2 where he says, Then I said to these leaders, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. We're going to look at three different steps that Nehemiah took in this process of of mobilizing people to rebuild this wall, and they're steps that still apply to us today in a variety of endeavors. And the first thing we see Nehemiah doing here is that he is defining the mission. Defining the mission. You have to clarify, okay, what's going on and where are we going here? And he begins defining the mission by clarifying, okay, what's the problem here that we need to address? He was assessing reality. So he says to the leaders there, he says, you see the trouble we are in. 
Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. And this was a major deal back then because cities, if you wanted to be any any type of city at all, you needed a wall around your city. That was your primary form of protection. A wall in that era was as important, if not more so, to the protection of the city than an actual army was. And the walls in Jerusalem had been broken down. So Nehemiah is calling their attention to this problem. You may be thinking, well, yeah, I mean, they live in that city. Wouldn't they know that the wall is broken down? Why does he even have to explain this? But I think the very fact that they live in the city is part of what creates the need for him to clarify the issue. Because the longer you live someplace, the more accustomed you are to the way things are, the less your eyes are going to be able to recognize the needs around you. Because what you see just becomes normal. I, I think of um, just a story from our own family. Um, we have two vehicles. We have a minivan uh, that we had to acquire because we're getting more kids and they don't fit in a Dodge Ram. Um, and our other vehicle is the Chevy Cavalier. They didn't fit in there either, but we have a 99 Chevy Cavalier. And it's really interesting. Whenever someone gets into the passenger seat to ride in our Cavalier, one of the first things they inevitably ask is, what's up with all the coins? <clears throat> you see, we have coins that are stuck into the seams throughout our dashboard uh, and the radio and stuff like that. And they're wondering, what's up with that? Well, let me explain. Uh, Shelly was the one who brought this car into our marriage, and this was her solution uh, it, it's a good reason. This was her solution for all the rattles and squeaks in that car. You get a rattle or a squeak, just stick a coin. Stick a nickel, dime, um, penny, whatever you need for the right thickness. Just stick it right in there where it squeaks. And it works. I'll tell you, when I met her and I first saw this stuff, I thought it was kind of strange. But it doesn't seem strange to me anymore. Because we've been married for nine years. I've been accustomed to this for a long time. And so now it's just part of the landscape of the car. I don't really even notice anymore, even though they're still working effectively. But you get someone else in there who's looking at it with fresh eyes, and they recognize the strangeness of what they see there. And I explain, you know what? It works. I had someone this morning earlier who said, I should try that too. <laughs> you can. It's a good piece of advice. But the reality is when you are accustomed to seeing something, even if it's broken or even if it's weird, you, don't, you, you begin to lose the sensitivity to the uniqueness of the situation. And for these people in Jerusalem, these walls, it's not like they've just been broken down for like a few months or a few years. They've been broken down for over 140 years. That means that all the leaders, all the residents in Jerusalem had been born when the walls had already been broken down for many decades before that. It had been that way their entire lives. And so I'm sure they knew the walls were broken down, but there wasn't this sense of urgency of we need to do something about it. And so it took an outsider coming in, looking at things with fresh eyes, to say, you know what? The walls are broken. That is the reality. That is a problem. We need to do something about it. And you have to define the problem in order to clarify what the correct path is to come to a solution. I think of, for ourselves as a church family, we have a mission that God has called us to. And in order to clearly understand the path that we need to pursue for our mission, we need to clearly understand the problems, uh, the, the shortcomings that our mission is trying to address. We need to have an accurate view of reality around us. So I want to take a few minutes to really define current realities that, that we face that our mission as a church addresses or has to deal with. One of the realities that we face is the reality that, that people around us frequently see church 
as irrelevant. In our society, church is just seen as irrelevant by many people. Statistics show it. If you look at generations, like each generation for the last, that's been born in the last 100 years, every single generation shows a significant drop in the number of people who identify themselves as Christians and are involved in church. One of the more recent generations, the millennials born between 1980 and 2000, uh, of the millennials, only about 15% identify themselves as Christians. And a much smaller percentage are involved in churches on a regular basis. More and more of our society is seeing church simply as irrelevant. I think of, of just the demographics here in Ozaki County. Shelley and I have lived here for coming up on five years. But before this, I've lived in a variety of other places, especially during the last 15 years or so. And of all the different places I've lived, I feel like this probably is the most churched place I've ever lived in terms of people who have a church background. But as I talk with people who have this church background, the problem is that for most people, church simply is in the background. It's something that was a part of their past. And if it's a part of their present, it's a part of their present primarily through special events like weddings and funerals and Christmas Eve services. And so people, they see church as, you know what, something that they did back then when they were growing up. But church doesn't have a lot of relevance to their life now. They see it as irrelevant. And the problem in all of this, there are multiple problems. One of them is that then the message that we are trying to communicate as a church that comes straight from Scripture is also seen as irrelevant. On top of that, if church is seen as irrelevant, it's going to be really hard to get people to come into the doors of the church and experience what's going on here. As good as it might be in here, in the life of the church, even if people are invited, and they, if they see church as irrelevant, they're going to think, why would I want to be a part of that? So that's a part of our current reality that we have to understand. And the second part of our current reality that pertains specifically to us here in Ozaki County is that many people here in Ozaki County are familiar with church, but not with the gospel. You see, a lot of people, majority of people in this county, have a significant church background. They know about the activities of church, but they aren't as familiar about the gospel. I, I talk with a lot of people about spiritual backgrounds, and I find, you know what, there are many people who, they can tell you all kinds of things about their church background and activities, but when it really comes down to the message of the gospel, which is the good news that even though we are sinners and separated from God for eternity unless he intervenes, the good news is that he has intervened, that he has sent Christ to be um, a payment for our sins. And he's the only one who can pay for them. We can't earn our way back to God by good works. It's only by faith in Christ. And the other good news along with that is that's the source of salvation and eternal life and true full life here on this earth. That is great news. I find that the vast majority of people I talk with, even though they may have a significant familiarity with church, they really are not that aware of the truths of the gospel. That's a part of the context that we are swimming in here in Ozaki County. Now let me just share one more current reality. There are a lot more we could go through, but one more that pertains more to the church, uh, not just this church, but churches in general, is that Bible knowledge and church activity cannot be equated with spiritual growth. They can be contributing factors for spiritual growth, but simply because people are gaining knowledge about the Bible and are active in church, that does not mean that they are growing spiritually. And unfortunately, many of our church activities and focuses are primarily, primarily focused on simply conveying biblical information, which, which is good, 
But we were called not merely to be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. And churches are focused on getting people involved in their activities. But we have to recognize there, there needs to be more than that. And you do get growth through these things. But there's a lot of potential we're leaving on the table if we simply stop with calling people to learn more about the Bible and to be active in church. We'll talk in a few minutes about what else we need there. But we just need to recognize these sorts of current realities if we want to have a clear picture of the mission to which God has called us. And so Nehemiah, after he clarified uh, the problems that they were facing, then he was able to seek clarity on defining the solution of what they need to do about it. He said, okay, you see the trouble we are in in because Jerusalem lies in ruins and the gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Now, that sounds pretty straightforward of, okay, the walls are broken, there's a problem. Well, let's rebuild the walls. Granted, it's not easy to rebuild walls that go around the entire city that are 15 to 20 feet high and 3 to 5 feet wide. That's not that easy of a task ahead of them. But at least at the very, at the very least, it's easy to define the task that needs to happen, even if it's hard to actually carry it out. For us as a church and for churches and, and Christians across the globe, defining success in terms of what are we trying to do is a little bit more challenging. So you don't define it as far as we're trying to build a wall or we're trying to build a church building or we're trying to make money. As we talked about last week, one of the definitions of success in a church is making disciples. And so one of the things we've done here at Freedoms is clarify what is a disciple? So, so we clarified well, this diagram that we call the up and out triangle saying that, that Christians really should have three key relationships that they are investing in and they're healthy. You're up relationship with God. You're in relationship in terms of within the body of Christ with other Christians. And you're out relationship with the world around you in terms of reaching them with the gospel. And the, the gospel's at the dead center of it all. We've clarified we believe this is our, is our north star for how we're seeking to make disciples and what our mission is as individuals and as a church family. But that still doesn't clarify, okay, how are we going to pursue that? There are a lot of churches that talk about making disciples. But we need to actually figure out a pathway for where, how we're going to pursue this. And so towards that end, one of the things that we've been working on is a set of disciple-making values, four values that we want to shape our ministry. That If we can accomplish these things, it'll get us a long way down the road towards actually making disciples. And one of the values that we've been working on in the church council and the adult, adult discipleship team is, this, is discipleship through relationships saying that, you know what, biblical knowledge isn't enough. Church programs in and of themselves are not enough. God's plan A for how he builds disciples is through people investing in other people's lives with the gospel. Because we believe the gospel flows best over the bridge of relationships. If you were at the women's retreat, you've heard all about that. But this is a focus that we are developing. I mean, we'll still have other activities, other programs, but in the midst of everything we're doing, we're seeking to help foster and to build relationships that the gospel flows over those, over those relationships uh, into other Christians' lives to build them up and into the lives of non-Christians. Because inviting people to the church is not enough. Even if they come, that's not enough. They need the bridge of relationships to reach them with the gospel. So that's one of our values that we're defining here. One of the others, a little bit more challenging to, uh, to understand without explanation, it's high invitation, high challenge. Invitation is talking about uh, this love, this warmth, this trust that's being built there. If you want to be with other people, you want to have that relationship with God. And there's the warmth where you're invited in. 
But the challenge part says, you know what? There's this other side as well. Jesus says, come follow me, but in order to, to, you must take up your cross to follow me. I mean, you come to have life, but you must die in the process, die to yourself. There's the challenge part of saying that, that you need the, the growth. You need the encouragement to grow. You need the accountability as well. And those are elements that are oftentimes missing in our church activities because we're passing on biblical knowledge and we're having people be busy and be encouraged. But we also need to be challenged to grow. And we find that challenge works best in the context of trusting, loving relationships. The higher the level of trust and love, the more you're going to be able to, to challenge people to grow and to hold them accountable in the process. So these are a couple of the values that we have clarified that we want to pursue to help us fulfill the mission of making disciples. And that's what Nehemiah was doing here too. He was building a wall and so he needed to define the mission that lie out before them. Now I want to move on to that second step of what he did. And the next step was to motivate people's hearts. I mean, you can have a great plan. You can have a great mission on paper. But if you can't actually get people motivated to, to buy into it and to do something about it, it's just going to remain on paper. But Nehemiah was excellent at motivating people's hearts in the process. First of all, we see that he is pointing to that if you build this wall, it's going to glorify God. He said, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Now, he could have said there, then we will no longer be, have to be fearful of attack because we'll have the wall to protect us. That would have been very valid. But instead, he said, then we will no longer be in disgrace because he recognized that it is disgraceful to be a city with broken walls. And it's a disgrace not only to the people of the city, but to God himself because Jerusalem was a representation of the God of Israel and of the people of God. And they were in disgrace. And so when they rebuilt the walls, they would restore, in essence, the glory of God as other people looked at what was taking place there. We also see here that Nehemiah is pointing to that God has his hand in what's going on here. He's, he's, he's calling them to this under God's authority. He says in verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me. It's been evident that God's working in here. He says, you know what? If God is for us, who can stand against us? If God is calling us to this, who are we to drag our heels? We need to rise up and accomplish the mission. He's motivating people. And one of the other things he seeks to do is to say, you know what, we're in this together. Listen, I'm going to reread verse 17, but emphasizing certain pronouns. He says, You see this trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. See, Nehemiah had only been in Jerusalem for probably a handful of days at this point. He could have easily acted as if he's some visiting official from the capital city of Susa, and he's saying, you know what, you guys, you have such a mess here. I'm going to come in and I'm going to um, tell you guys how to fix this thing. He didn't do that. Instead, he's identifying with the people. He's saying, you know what, we have a problem, but we can work together so that we can fix the problem. I think, again, of Winston Churchill. I mean, just a great leader, a great speaker. Uh, a little while later in the war, World War II, uh, things were not looking good in Europe. More and more of the geography was falling to the Nazis. 
Um, a lot of the allies there that, that had been allied with Britain were no longer able to support them. And it kind of looked like Britain might have to stand alone in Europe. And Winston Churchill addressed the people of Britain and said, well, I'll just read what he said. He says, We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight in the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight in the beaches. We shall fight in the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. You hear? I mean, hopefully you didn't miss the wheeze there. Um, it's a group effort. I mean, not everyone is out on the front lines of the battlefield. There are a lot of people still at home. There are a lot of people in the government who are governing what's going on there. But they are all in it together. It's a collaborative effort towards a common goal and a common mission. That's what Nehemiah is calling here, too. Um, He's just saying, you know what? We need to to rise up. So we have this issue of motivation. I want to share with you just from the heart of, okay, what motivates me? You can probably tell I care a little bit about making disciples. What motivates me? And I think it's, it's appropriate to share that because really what we see Nehemiah doing here is simply sharing what motivated him. If you compare word for word what is in uh, Nehemiah 2.17 with what is in Nehemiah 1.3, there are a lot of parallels. One, chapter 1 verse 3 is where Nehemiah first heard about the chaos in Jerusalem. Uh, he said, the, the people reported to him and said, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Same thing. That, that's what grabbed Nehemiah's attention. He's using that same thing, same terminology to try to grab the attention of the people in Jerusalem. He says, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Disgrace is in both places. Trouble is in both places. The description of the walls and the gates are the same in both places. He's hoping the same thing that motivates him will also motivate them. And so for me, what motivates me to have such a passion for making disciples? I'll say it really has nothing directly to do with being a pastor. You may think, well, that's your job. Well, not really. This was my passion for a lot longer than I was a pastor or in vocational ministry. A big part of my passion simply comes from me knowing Christ, uh, of what God has done in my life. I, I think of Philippians 3.8, one of my fav- favorite verses where Paul says, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And so, so there's something tremendous about knowing Jesus. And I think about how... Um, I didn't become a Christian until I was 20 years old. I was one of those people who grew up in church but didn't know much at all about Jesus. And so I can identify with this pursuit of a lot of things, looking for identity and security and significance and a sense of self-worth. I pursued a lot of different things that could not ultimately fulfill. I mean, I pursued success in, in athletics and in school. I mean, I achieved some success, but that success is fleeting. I pursued uh, the sense of significance by things I owned. A nice truck, a nice stereo. Those things are nice, but it leaves you wanting more, and the newness wears off after a while. I mean, if you are setting, uh, if you're trying to gain a sense of significance by people patting you on the back and people having a high opinion of you, what happens when people don't like you as much? 
what happens when you say or do something that doesn't reflect well on you. I mean, if, you, if your identity is simply in who you are and how people think of you, and you put yourself up on that pedestal, you can come crashing down pretty hard. And, and so even though a lot of these other things we can put our significance and identity in can be fun, they're also very fragile and very fleeting. And so I have found from personal experience that only Jesus can ultimately satisfy. And that is part of what motivates me. Another part of the motivation is the joy of seeing God work in people's lives. Back when I was meeting with the search committee here at Freedom's about five years ago, um, I mean, I don't remember the question that was asking me, but in that meeting at Rose Morgan's house, I remember just talking about how, you know what, seeing God work in people's lives is addictive. It's a joy. I mean, it's so fun to see God work in other people's lives. And I've seen that same joy in the hearts and the mouths of people here at Freedom's too, even in the last few weeks. Um, even, even as a result of talking with people from the retreat the last couple days, as they were talking about relationships that have impacted them or about new relationships that are forming that they want to be impacted through. There's joy there. It's joy that can't be taken away. Joy that, um, I mean, it's just so amazing to be investing in people's lives to make a difference in life eternity. I mean, there are also the motivations of, you know what, without Christ, people are going to hell. That's definitely a motivation. Um, Another motivation is just I want to see people um, doing things that matter in life eternity rather than things that are empty ultimately. But those things don't motivate me quite as much as the joy of seeing, of knowing Christ and the joy of helping others know him as well. So that's some of what motivates me. And I, I would ask you as well to consider, okay, what might motivate you to get on the cause of building God's kingdom wholeheartedly? So we have this idea of we need to motivate people. And you need not only to find the mission, motivate people, but you actually need to mobilize them to action. Because if you aren't mobilizing people and actually getting some action done, All you're doing is spinning your tires and and getting a lot of heat and excitement going without actual production. And so so Nehemiah then went on to seek to motivate, uh, not just motivate the people, but mobilize people to action. That's what the entire chapter 3 of Nehemiah is talking about. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, um, partly because it's hard to read because of all the strange names, um, but also because it's long. But I'm going to read the first four verses just to give us a taste of what is here. Nehemiah says, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was built by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hekaz, built the next section. Next to him, Meshalem, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to him, Zadok, the son of Bana, also made repairs. So those few verses just give you a little bit of a taste of what takes place throughout this chapter. In the note-taking outline in your bulletin, there's a map of Jerusalem at that time. And what, what, if you follow that map... What Nehemiah is doing, he's starting in the northeastern section of the city um, with the sheep gate. He's working his way around counterclockwise, uh, just explaining who is repairing each section of this wall and each of the ten gates. 
I mean, it's really quite impressive when you see what's taking place here. There are over 40 groups of people who are involved in rebuilding this wall. And they're setting out and they are going to accomplish it because Nehemiah has been able not just to motivate people and to find the issue, but he's been able to mobilize people to action. And there are a few uh, action points I want to take out of this and apply to us. And one of them, uh, as we look at Nehemiah 3, is the importance of everyone contributing. You see here, everyone from the high priest down to the farmers, down to everyone else was contributing. I mean, the high priest was working next to goldsmiths and next to to people who sold perfume. Uh, You had the civic leaders next to the farmers. You had the city dwellers next to uh, the country folk. And so it's cool to see everyone just bring, coming together, contributing what they could contribute to building up the wall. And it's the same for the church. We all bring different skills and talents to the table. But it's essential that we all bring what we have to, re, to build God's kingdom in a faithful way. Also, we see here in this chapter the focus on the greater good. Now, it's interesting that part of Nehemiah's wisdom and what he was doing was organizing people so that um, if people lived in the city or worked in the city, they would be, be re- rebuilding a section of wall that was next to their house or next to their business because then they would have a vested interest in rebuilding that section well. But you had other people who would actually come in from outside the city who didn't live within the city walls in order to help rebuild the walls. And they didn't necessarily have as much of a vested interest there But they still, they were focused on the greater good and everyone contributing together to the cause at hand. And it should be the same with the kingdom of God and the same with the life of the church. You know what? We may have things going on in the life of the church that you may not feel a vested interest in. You may not see how it directly benefits you. But still, we are called to work for the greater good. Some practical application points from that. If you are, say, an older person, I'm not going to define older because I end up sticking my foot in my mouth then. But if you have a few generations or a few decades behind you in, in life experience and walking with God, I think there can be a temptation to kind of feel like, you know what, I've put in my time and now it's time for others to step up and I'm just going to kind of take it easy now. That's something I see far too often. And in reality, what you're doing is wasting God-given opportunities and God-given life that you could invest in others. Because when you are older and you have more experience, you have so much to invest in others. And it just goes wasted if you are just sitting back saying, well, I've put in my time. I think also of younger people, um, whether it's children, whether it's teenagers, people in their 20s and 30s. People in this demographic, it's important that we recognize that we need to prioritize what we're doing. We're busy with all kinds of stuff, but are we really investing our lives in stuff that really matters? In the midst of the busyness, we show our priorities by what we do, what what we invest our time in. For all of us, regardless of our age or spiritual background, I want to challenge us that after church services, don't just gravitate to the people that you already know. But if you see someone who you don't know, even here in the church service, reach out to them. It's something you can do that is looking to the greater good and not just to what you like or not just what makes you comfortable. It can make a world of difference. And so we see people in Nehemiah 3 focusing on the greater good, and we also see them working together. It would be so cool to be there working on the wall. I mean, hard work. I think a lot of people would be a couple hours in and be like, this is hard. I'm ready to be done. But imagine the encouragement you would get from looking down the wall to one side of you and seeing, wow, you have people right there and you have people further down. I mean, there's a phrase over and over in Nehemiah chapter 3 that says, and next to him and next to them 
and next to them. To look down there and see on all as far as you can see that way, these groups rebuilding the wall down there. And you look the other way, the same thing. And they're all working together for this greater good, this bigger purpose. And when you look around and see others investing their lives as well in what you're investing your life in, it gives you great encouragement and great picture of what you're actually trying to accomplish. And it should really be the same thing in the life of the church. Now, I said earlier, we had defined four disciple-making values for our church family. Uh, first one, discipleship through relationships, high invitation, high challenge. A third one is empower the people. The ministry should not be reserved just for the pastors or the church council or something like that. We see Nehemiah is mobilizing everyone. It's the same in the life of the church. Mobilize everyone to contribute in the ways that are unique to them, to empower the people to make disciples, empower the people to do the work of the ministry. And a fourth uh, disciple-making value is simplify the structure. Because we need to recognize that, um, that, that, that focus helps increase, focusing our energy helps increase gospel fruitfulness. That we are busy people. And I really am not interested in making you more busy. I'm interested in focusing our attention on the things that are most effective and most fruitful for helping you grow as disciples and helping me grow as a disciple and helping us all grow as disciple makers. And so, so these are things that we're going to be focusing on increasingly as a church to help us to grow in making disciples. And we need to recognize here that the goal is not just to build Freedom's Church. I mean, we're not the end-all be-all here. Um, our goal is not to build our little freedoms fiefdom. Our goal is to build the kingdom of God. And when you look in the New Testament, you see that God's way that he is building his kingdom on this earth is primarily through the work of churches like Freedom's Church. So, so churches play a significant role there. People are ministering in and through the church. But ultimately, the church is not the end-all be-all but the church is a conduit for building up the kingdom of God. So that's our primary focus. Now we look at Nehemiah. He, he challenged and he encouraged the people of Jerusalem to rise up and build the city back up. He gave them a mission. He, he said, you know what, this is under the authority of God that we're doing this. And he's saying we're in it together. It's an us type of thing. Now I fast forward about 475 years to another leader a leader with a capital L because he was the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ. He also gave a mission. It's a mission that endures not just to his generation, but even into ours. And it had a lot of the same parallels to Nehemiah's mission that he gave the people in Jerusalem. For Jesus said in Matthew 28, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them, them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So you see, Jesus not only gives the mission to make disciples, but he also talks about the authority that the mission comes with. The authority comes from God, funneled through Jesus, funneled to us. And he says, you know what? It's not just a you thing. It's not just you guys who are doing it. It's us who are doing it together. Jesus says, I will be with you always. We will be making disciples together. My prayer for us is that our level of commitment to making disciples and building God's kingdom will be as great as, if not greater than, the commitment that the Brits showed in winning World War II, the commitment that the people of Jerusalem made in rebuilding the wall, because the commitment that we can make to building the kingdom of God 
is a commitment to building something that will last beyond everything else. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you give us the privilege of being your children and your ambassadors to build up your kingdom. And I pray that we will be faithful to do that, that we will rise beyond the complacency or the fear or the distraction level, and that we will be a part of building your kingdom here on this earth. Lord, now as we bring to you our tithes and our offerings, we pray that you will use these finances to also build your kingdom here in Ozaki County, bring true life through Christ to this county, but also to build up your kingdom around this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.